Let's pray together as we open our Bibles. Heavenly Father, what amazing truths. That on the cross we see our names written in the wounds and graven on your heart. That you would do that for us. Father, this morning we are not burdened with lack of understanding, but lack of rejoicing at that truth. We need your spirit to open our hearts, to move us. Father, to move me, that we would not look at these truths and have them be old hat, or take them for granted, or allow the gospel to be mundane. It's too easy to let that happen, Father. Give me the grace to speak. Give us the grace to hear the glory of the cross this morning. We praise you. And in Jesus' name we say amen. Open with me to Romans chapter 3. This morning we continue our series on the glories of the cross. You know, and as next week we'll be diving right back into the book of Acts, I wanted us to take a few weeks out, to focus on the apostolic preaching of the cross. In the book of Acts, we see the apostles preaching and people doing radical things. We see people giving up their lives, giving up their livelihoods, going to foreign lands, enduring persecution. Just last, uh, last sermon, we saw Paul being stoned in one city and then marching right back in. And it's pretty easy to read stories like that and just get to a place where they just, they seem separate from us. They seem like interesting stories. We talk about them as heroes of the faith. And it's very easy for us to get to a place where the gospel doesn't seem like it would produce that kind of faith in us. And so in this little mini-series of two, two to three sermons, we're going to be going to these critical passages in the Bible that show what it was that the apostles were preaching, what it was that lit a fire in these people's hearts to react that way. What was it about what Jesus said that would cause a Pharisee who was persecuting the church to sell all of his belongings and travel the world getting stoned so that he could tell people about Jesus? What could make that happen? You know, we look at the Apostle Paul. He was a lifelong Jew. He was educated in this religion. And after meeting Christ, he changed his entire view of the Bible. Over the course of three years in Ephesus, he sat there and studied until he came to the conclusion that everything he'd ever known before was wrong. What can cause that kind of faith? That's why we want to look at these passages and see what it is that makes the cross so enticing, so profound, so life-changing, so glorious. Read with me if you would. We're going to start in Romans, Romans chapter 3 at verse 10. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in the paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace is not known before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this passage, at least in part, is probably very familiar to you if you grew up in the church. I think Romans 3.23 was probably the first Awana verse I ever had to learn. And for good reason. This is widely considered maybe the most important passage in the book of Romans. It's called the hinge. This is the the part of Romans where Paul turns from this great argument about why the whole world is standing under the wrath of God, both Jew and Gentile. He talks about those born under the law and those born without the law who are a law unto themselves, and both stand condemned before God. And right here, Paul is going to make another one of those great but now statements. We saw this last week in Ephesians where we were dead in our transgression and and sins, but now we are made alive in Christ. We have another one of those great hinge statements where the entire book is going to turn from what we were to what we are in Christ Jesus. And in verse 21 it does that, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. We get the whole gospel defined in this passage in, in one of the shortest, most concise kind of boiled down gospel definitions in the entire Bible. In verse 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we can't get a much simpler presentation of the gospel than that. However, have you noticed that for most of us, we learned that passage, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and have justified We usually learn that passage extracted from the rest of the book. We know that passage, but all of this other stuff about righteousness and law, we generally don't memorize that all together. And I think that's mostly because Romans is hard. Romans is confusing. It's difficult. My mother uh, has been a great encouragement to me throughout all of seminary, and she often blesses me in ways she doesn't even realize. When she heard I was preaching this little mini-series, She said, okay, what are you preaching on? I'm going to read the books along with you. That was a huge blessing to me. Um, To know that someone's praying through a book and reading through it with you as you look for God's wisdom in it. And so last week she was reading through Ephesians and she goes, Romans is going to be a little bit harder. (laughs) 
I said, yeah, it is. I have to preach it. Romans can be confusing. Paul has a lot packed into this argument, but this morning I want us to zoom out and look at this because he's going to say something really important to help us understand what is it that God is doing at the cross. You see, we talk about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. Grace is a big deal to Christians. We talk about grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Mercy there was great and grace was free. We even name our churches after it. Grace Bible Church, Grace Community Church, Grace Baptist Church, one of those popular church names. Why is it that we are so obsessed with grace? See, part of the problem is I think oftentimes we have rather simplistic and unhelpful definitions of grace. What is it? Well, we might say, well, it's, it's God's attitude towards us. God has goodwill towards us that we don't deserve. That is grace. That is not a wrong definition of grace. But I would propose it is an insufficient definition of grace. Sometimes when we say grace, we just mean that God is a nice guy, cranked up to 11. He's a really, really, really nice guy. And that's what grace is. What we would say that Grace, well, grace is God saving us, but from what? Grace means God is good to us, but in what way? Well, Paul is here in this passage telling us what grace is. Look with me again at verse 24. All are justified by grace as a gift. So grace does something. Grace has a purpose. Grace has an effect. I was talking with my sister this week about a book, Love Does. Well, what does love do? Actually, I think the author of that book doesn't quite get it right. I think Paul does. Love does justification. What does grace do? Grace, in effect, justifies. So here's an essential truth to understanding what the cross is. The action that grace took in your life when you were saved was justification. So if you don't understand justification, you don't understand grace. The problem is justification's justification's not as exciting. It's not as easy to sing. Amazing justification. How sweet. It doesn't fit in the same way. Justification Bible Church. It just doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue. But I want to show you that in this passage, Paul is obsessed with this idea. And hopefully, if I do my job right, by the end of this sermon, you will be obsessed with this idea. Because it is one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible. For Paul, grace is not ultimately found in God giving you nice things, or answering your prayers, or keeping you safe, or building a mansion in heaven. These are all nice things. These are certainly part of God's goodwill towards us. But the pinnacle, the apex, the quintessence of God's grace is found in this word. You were justified. Let me prove it to you from this passage. This is one of those rare times where I'm going to use Greek in the pulpit, and it's not just because I just graduated, okay? I promise. Uh, this is one of those times when I wish we could all read the Greek Bible together. Greek is not magic. It doesn't make you a superhuman biblical interpreter. Your English translation is very accurate, and you can get very close to God with it. But every once in a while, Greek really helps us understand some things. And here is one thing that I want to point out to you. I just told you that 
the pinnacle of Paul's understanding of grace is justification. That's a huge statement. But let me show you this in this passage. Verse 24, that word justification is the Greek word dikaiomenoi. It's from the root word dikaios. This is all you need to remember about that. Dikaios is a word that has to do with righteousness, purity, what is good in the world, what is right. That whole massive idea of all good things, all just things. When we see a butterfly or we see somebody get rightly rewarded, all goodness all things made right in the world that come from that same root that then gets divided up and used in different ways. Just, right, pure. And yet, read through, me, read through with me, starting at verse 21, and let me show you how Paul is using the same root word throughout the passage. Starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness. That's actually the same word. Dikaiosune. Now the righteousness, the rightness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, there it is again, dikaiosune of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Wait a minute, same word. We translate it slightly different in our English to help us understand. But it's actually dikaiousunei, justified, to make right are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. This was to show his righteousness, dikaiosune again, because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was to show his righteousness, dikaiosune, at the present time, so that he might be just, wait a minute, same word, dikaion, and justifier, dikaiounta, the right maker of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Seven times in two sentences. Seven times in two sentences. And if you go back to the previous chapter and read forward on to the next chapter in the book of Romans, Paul just keeps saying the same word over and over and over again. He is obsessed with the idea of the righteousness, justice, purity of God. And the biggest problem in this passage is for God to show his righteousness. Did you think about that? The goal of the gospel is to show that God is right, just, and pure. We normally think of the goal of the gospel as salvation, and it is. But Paul here is telling us the goal of the gospel was to show something. Let me illustrate, let me read this passage again and illustrate this by translating these all the same way in English. But now the rightness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And the prophets bear witness to it. The rightness of God found in Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are made right by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation of his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's rightness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his rightness at the present time so that he might be both right and the one who makes people right for the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now in English that's a lousy translation and admittedly I won't be invited onto a translation committee anytime soon. But it does give you a sense of the passage. Paul is 
hammering home again and again and again, there's something really important for us as Christians to see that God is right. But why? Well, it was to show his righteousness. Right? Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed apart from the law. See, Paul is at great pains to show that when God saved you, he didn't sacrifice his moral rightness to do so. What's the problem? Why is it essential that God defend his right morality in saving us? We don't ever think of that as a problem. Of course God was right to save us, and yet Paul is saying there's a big problem. He can't be both just and justifier. There's a problem that happens at the cross. In order to understand this, we have to understand what is God's righteousness. Usually we think of God's righteousness as merely God's conformity to a code. Right? God is righteous because God, God keeps the rules. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is rule keeping. Righteousness is don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and do not go with girls that do. But that is not the view of righteousness that Paul has here. What is righteousness? Righteousness is purity, good, virtuousness. We're talking about cosmic things here. Why is anything good in the universe? Because it came from somewhere. Where did it come from? The Bible tells us, you don't have to turn there with me, but James 1.17, don't be deceived, brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The world is good because God created it. All of the goodness, all of the purity in the world comes from one place. God. Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who could ever give a gift to him that he might be repaid? Every good and perfect gift. See, here is one of those mind-blowing little philosophical truths about the God that we worship. God is not good, pure, or loving because he measures up to goodness, purity, and love. God himself is goodness, purity, and love. And all good things flow out of him. God is the standard of goodness in the universe. There's nothing more pure, nothing more beautiful, nothing more good or righteous than him. And by definition, all good things, all pure things, all righteous things flow from him, are derived from him. When you enjoy a sunset... You are seeing something that only exists because the most pure form of goodness is the God of the universe. When you enjoy a really good steak, you are tasting something that is good only because the quintessential good already exists in God himself. See, God's righteousness is not mere conformity to a code of conduct. It is the fountain from which everything worth having in this life springs. All goodness springs from him. 
And by inverse, without him, there would be nothing good in the universe. He is the spring of all happiness and delight that has ever happened anywhere. And that alone would be reason enough for us to praise him. Every good thing in the universe, every sunset, every happy thought, every butterfly kiss from your daughter, from the grandeur of the Grand Canyon to the beauty of music, to the most intimate relationships in our life, they exist because they flow from God. This is why Paul can equate God's righteousness with his glory in verse 23. Glory is one of those, those terms that we don't think of legally at all. We would say righteousness. Well, righteousness is a legal definition. It's, it's God's goodness and he can, it's God's conformity to the law. But glory, Paul says you can fall for, short of the glory of God. Glory is beauty and brightness. The radiance of the sun, the, the fantastic boom of a firecracker, those are the things that we would call glorious. And Paul says righteousness and glory can be talked about in the same way because the fact that God is morally right is what causes all other good things in the universe. Falling short of God's righteousness is the same thing as falling short of his glory. So here's the implication. I realize we're being pretty philosophical this morning. But when we talk about sin, we're not referring merely to transgressing some arbitrary list of rules. We're talking about treason against the character of God. See, our problem is much bigger than law-breaking. Sin isn't a cosmic parking ticket. It is an assault on everything good in the universe. God is the pool out of which all goodness flows. And when you kiss your kids goodnight, that is something that exists because of the righteousness of God. Do you see why it's a big deal that the righteousness of God not be transgressed? That this pool not be polluted? That all good things in the universe flow from this. This is why God cannot tolerate sin. To do so would be to pollute the fountain of all the good things we experience. For God to put up with sin would be to depurify the one pure source in all the universe. And this is the problem that all religions try to solve. We look around, we see ourselves, we know that we're messed up. So how does God deal with us? Either he stays pure and destroys all sin, and by extension all sinners who do it, or he tolerates sinners and becomes impure and life means nothing. Now, I realize I've been very philosophical, very out there, but I think this gets imminently practical. I think this comes down to life real quick. I want to show you how. I think the perfect illustration comes from this book, The Shack. This was hugely popular, sold over 10 million copies. It's a couple years old now. Um, and it's, it's been endorsed by some very famous, very influential Christians. Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible Paraphrase, endorsed this, called it the, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress of Our Generation. Michael W. Smith, he's written a few songs, I think. He endorsed this, said it was a great book, changed his life. This is the story of a man named Mac, Whose, younger daughter, whose youngest daughter is kidnapped and brutally beaten in a shack in the wilderness before she's murdered and left for death. And in the story, 
the author's personification of God invites Mac back to the shack where his daughter was murdered to come to terms with evil. And I can't think of much more powerful example of how to deal with the implications of sin in the world. What does a good God say to a man whose little girl has been violated? How do you forgive? How do you see God as good again? See, this book is powerful. This book touched a lot of people because most of us have small problems into comparison to that. We can understand the problem of evil when we see it put in those terms. So what does God say to someone who has experienced the most deep kind of violation, the goodness of their life being polluted by evil? Tragically, I think this author gets it horribly wrong. Mac meets God on the lake, on the pier outside of the shack. And he says to God this, if you're God, aren't you the one spilling out great bowls of wrath and throwing people into a burning lake of fire? Matt could feel his deep anger emerging again, pushing questions out in front of it. He was a little chagrined at his own lack of self-control. But he asked anyway, Honestly, don't you enjoy punishing those who disappoint you? At that, Papa, that's this author's view of God, stopped her preparations and turned towards Mac. He could see a deep sadness in her eyes. I am not what you think I am, Mackenzie. I do not punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It is not my purpose to punish it. It is my joy to cure it. When I first read this book, I had to stop and throw it across the room at that point. Not funny. I was ticked. That is a, a nice sentiment. I understand why the author wants to go there. The punishment of God is hard to deal with, and yet he had unknowingly created the best example of not understanding the righteousness of God I think has ever been put into print. Because is this what a good father would say? Would God say, I know your daughter was murdered. I know she was violated, but it's not a big deal. See, that is its own punishment. It's okay. That's punishment enough. The fact that the murderer has experienced that is punishment enough. Absolutely not. No good father would look at your pain and say that. A good father looks at the pain of his children and says, I will avenge that. I will take care of that. Your pain matters. Some of you this morning have experienced pain this deep. And I want you to know that God does not look at your pain and say, You know, the person who sinned against you, they've suffered enough. It's okay. A God who does not punish evil is a God who is petty and detestable. A God who does not punish evil is a God who does not care. And only those who have faced little bit of evil can say this. 
Those faced with the horrors of the gas chambers in Nazi Germany or the killing fields of Cambodia have no such easy, gentle personifications of God. When your worst moment is the fact that you lost your job, you can live with a God who says that. But if your daughter is taken away and raped and murdered, you need an angry God because you need a righteous God. In my hometown, there was a a Holocaust survivor who, uh, who, had, who had been taken to Buchenwald. And he survived the Holocaust because he was thrown into a furnace with hundreds of other Jews and miraculously survived. He was thrown on a pile of dead, burnt bodies and somehow crawled out from underneath them and marched barefoot across the countryside. And he wrote a book about his experience, and this is the title of the book, Was God on Vacation? It's a legitimate question, is it? When your family and friends are burned to death and you are thrown on the pile of their bodies, does God care? Friends, God cares. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Proverbs 11.21, be sure of this, I am the Lord, the wicked will not go unpunished. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger but graced in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way will be in the whirlwind and the storm, the clouds are dust at his feet. Praise the Lord that we have a righteous, angry God. In a world full of evil and destruction, we need a God who will come and avenge. We need a God who will not put up with people who kill little girls. We need a God who will punish the Nazis. We need a God who will stop ISIS. And if he is unwilling to do so, he is the most detestable being in the universe. Because he has the power to stop evil but will do nothing. That's why I threw this book across the room, because as much as this man is honestly trying to wrestle with God, he's trying to avoid seeing an angry God because it makes him uncomfortable. And in order to avoid seeing an angry God, he throws out a God who can ever do anything right. If God throws out his righteousness, his heart of true universal purity, then good does not matter, evil is permissible, and purity does not exist. All of your good works are worth nothing, and everything evil done against you is meaningless and excusable because no one cares. But here is the truth. That is not our God. He cares about his offenses against his people. He is the avenging father. The Bible says he has gathered all your tears in a bottle. He knows every campaign committed against you and would never dream of sweeping it under a rug. You see, in order to have a God of love, we must have a God of wrath. You know what I think God would say to Mac? I think God would say, I know how angry you are against a person who would violate your daughter. You have no idea how angry I am. Far more than you could ever be. Because I am far more righteous. Far more righteous than you. 
I did not ignore that. And I will take care of it. We need a God of wrath or we don't have a God who cares. Love must be wrathful in a sinful world or it isn't love. And yet here is the problem of the gospel. We deserve what would be paid out on our behalf. We have sinned against others. We are offenders as well as offended. And our sins have caused destruction in the lives of others. Not to mention the first sin, the worst sin, which is against God himself, the most pure being in all the universe, the most loving being in God in all the universe. We all deserve this wrath. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And this is the part where we start playing games with ourselves. We start expecting God to grade on a curve. Yes, we need an angry God for Hitler. God will be angry for Hitler. And then we start to move it back. What's the level at which you're comfortable with God being angry? Well, usually, our level that we're comfortable with God being angry is whatever we're not willing to forgive easily. We just, we move back the curve. For some of us, it's the guy who cuts us off on the interstate. You go, okay, now I need God to be angry. Maybe if we're a little holier than that, we move it back a little further. Well, the guy who cuts me off on the interstate, I let him off easy because I'm just so full of grace. I'm such a good guy. Just let him off. But boy, I tell you, my brother, he said some things back in the day. God needs to punish that. He hurt me deeply. That's where the line is that God needs to be righteous and wrathful. And everybody more righteous than me, who usually includes like Mother Teresa and a handful of others, They'll make it into heaven, and it's everybody that I can't forgive. That's who God should be unrighteous with. How is God supposed to curve the test based on that? Are we to be the standard of righteousness? Why is it that we think that the ones who have offended us are the ones who don't deserve repayment, and our sins are somehow exempt? You see, you start to work the equation backwards, and the only way the equation works out is if God is perfectly pure. The only way he can punish any sin is if he punishes all sin. Or somewhere along the way, somebody else becomes God. See, if I get to decide when, when righteousness stops, I have just declared myself the ruler of the universe. That's why the Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. This is why when asked about goodness, Jesus said there is no one good but God alone. That's why we talked about last week about how the whole world is dead. That was the effect of this cause. See, we need a wrathful God if there is to be any purity or love in the world. But here's the problem. We are not fit to live in a world of purity and love. This is the problem that the gospel tries to solve. How can God welcome impure, unloving people into his world? Paul starts to answer this question in verse 25. Go with me to verse 24. Actually, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The last 20 minutes, that's that's the reality we've been exploring. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift. We're going to come back to that. Made right, made pure, restored unto that purity that we've been talking about. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See, even in history, God had to pay for those sins. Verse 21. Let's get back to verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. See, the law was God's way of putting into words in a specific context, in a specific time, what his righteousness was. This pure fountain of all of the universe, what does that mean in day-to-day life? The Old Testament law was a way of trying to show the Israelites what that was, of treating each other with purity. All of those silly laws that we kind of make fun of, that was God's way of putting in, embodying to a particular time what it meant to be righteous. Why do you put a fence around your roof? Well, because if people hang out on your roof, you don't want them to fall off. That's a righteous thing to do. We see a picture of the purity of God in all of the Old Testament law. So that is just a description of purity in the universe. But Paul here says, here's the big surprise in the entire book of Romans. The righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law. It's revealed. It's a surprise. How will God solve the cosmic problem of not being able to invite sinners into his pure world? What righteousness could ever recover the imbalance? Well, Paul answers, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus that then Paul says is received as a gift. At the cross, God finds a way to make an act of righteousness that would settle the scales, an act of righteousness that could be given as a gift. But how does this happen? He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So received, remember, the gift The gift is received by faith, but what is the gift? Propitiation put forth by God in Christ. Propitiation, another word that we don't use very often. I tried desperately hard to find one worship song with propitiation in it. For Sunday morning, we all sing together. Propitiation, it's not out there. We don't use it. Maybe we ought to. What is propitiation? Well, I could give you a nice theological definition, but actually, for the original reader, it would have been much more pictorial than technical. Because this is the same word that refers back to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. The mercy seat was actually not a seat. It was the cover over the Ark of the Covenant. And it had one special purpose. You remember there was that day of atonement where one time in the year the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to give a sin offering 
for the people of Israel. And he would place his hands on a goat and confess over the goat, placing the sins of Israel on the goat. Symbolic of him laying the sins on that sacrifice. He would then slaughter the goat, go into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle the blood on the cover, on the mercy seat. Because that's where mercy came. The fact that blood was paying for the sins that the people should have paid for. And so God would ignore their sins for another year. That's the picture. Paul says Jesus is that lamb slain so that the blood can be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And I want us to think for a second about what that would have looked like. As I was thinking about this, I often when I'm thinking about illustrating sermons, I try to think, okay, what would, what would different people think of this? And I don't know why this thought came into my head, but I was thinking, what would an animal rights activist think about Leviticus 16? I am not an animal rights activist, by the way. I, uh, I enjoy killing and eating things. Um, but I, it got me thinking. I thought, you know, they would think, that is so wrong. That's so messed up that you would expect an innocent animal to take care of your sin problem. The goat did nothing, and you Jews are walking around killing animals in nasty ways and sprinkling their blood on stuff just so you can feel better about yourself. That's disgusting. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, there's a strange grain of truth in that. That's part of exactly what God wanted them to think. There's something not right about a goat having to take my sin. He didn't do anything. That goat had nothing to do with my bad thoughts. That goat had nothing to do with my sin. And yet, God doesn't say, come here and make it right. He says, no, you have to put it on something completely innocent and slaughter it. You think that maybe tweaked the consciences? Of those people seeing that? Why does it have to be that way, God? Yeah, it was meant to scandalize. It was meant to show them something about their sins. To have your sins placed on an innocent one, to say that's the only way they can be made right, robs you of any pride. It steals away any self-justification because there's nothing you can do about it. And as human beings, that is what most frustrates us. Friends, that is exactly what happened. In order to balance the scale, God placed his wrath on a completely innocent one. Wayne Grudem writes, Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up from the beginning of the world. God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment in past generations. He had forgiven sins and stored up his righteous anger against those sins. And on the cross, that stored up wrath was released against God's own son. See, this is how God shows his righteousness. How he shows he will stand up for purity in the world. He will not stand by. God will not stand by against Nazi Germany. God will not stand by as a little girl is murdered. And God showed at the cross, according to Paul, that he was not standing by. 
do you realize that every sin in the universe will be punished? Every sin in the universe will be punished. No sin will ever be overlooked. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The cross was an act of justice. And without it, God cannot be the justifier. See, without propitiation, it is impossible for God to justify you, to make you right, to bring you back into the purity of the universe. See, here's my problem. I don't belong in heaven. Right? God is preparing a mansion for me in a place I should not be allowed I don't belong there. We, think, we tend to think that good people go to heaven. The problem is you aren't one. There is no one righteous, not even one. So it's a wonderful thought that good people go to heaven and it's, no one's going to be there. It's going to be a great place where there are no citizens. Good people go to heaven. There are no good people. It's going to be a really beautiful, empty place. Right? Jesus goes to prepare mansions for good people. He hasn't had much to do lately. We don't deserve to be in heaven. God has to come up with a way to fix that problem. So how can God invite a bunch of wretches into heaven and still be good? How can God Take a murderer, someone who has murdered a little girl, and call him son. That's a problem. See, we, we tend to ease up the problem by minimizing our own sin. Well, I'm not like that, so the problem that God had in saving me must be pretty small. And yet, if we have a small view of sin, we have a small view of God, and we don't see God's love. And there is no purity in the world. So what does God do? Propitiation. He takes your sins. And just like that priest in the Old Testament, he takes your sins and places them on the lamb. And then breaks it for you. All of your sins laid on Christ. That's what's being offered in grace. The righteousness of Christ received through faith. His righteousness given to you. Your sin laid on him. The great exchange is what happens at the cross. What does love do? Love does that. So this morning as we wrap up, this is the question I want to ask. What did it take? What does that look like? If we're supposed to understand this as Christians, if this is what grace looks like, what is that? Turn with me to Matthew 27. This is where we'll wrap up this morning. Matthew 27. This is the description of the cross. Matthew 27, starting in verse 32. The story is probably very familiar to you. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, 
And they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. We're in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And by his head they had put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Quite a question, isn't it? Same question that Mac might be asking in this book. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer to that question? The Bible doesn't leave us wondering. Why did God forsake Jesus to save you. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief that his soul will make an offering for guilt. That, that was your punishment. Indeed, it still is. Apart from the righteousness of Christ placed on my soul fresh every morning that God looks at me, that is still my right punishment. Every sin I commit still earns the righteous wrath of God. And yet, God once for all crushed Jesus for me. Jesus once for all offered himself up for me. God in Christ bore my sin. He took the sin off of my back, laid his hands upon his son, and broke him. Do we see the love of God? Maybe you're here this morning and you wrestle with the love of God. You you doubt it because of things that have happened in your life, because of sins that have been committed against you. Look at the cross. See his great compassion for you. Every groan at the cross, every drop of blood was for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're angry and bitter. You've been sinned against in one of those ways that is too deep to sweep under the rug. I know some of you who've been through some really terrible stuff. And a God who forgives, who just sweeps things under the rug, who forgets about them, That's not a God you can worship. Look to the cross this morning and see that God has avenged every evil ever done against you. 
Do you realize that every sin ever committed against you will be avenged by God either for an eternity in hell or was already paid on the back of the eternal Son of God on the cross? He wept and bled so that God could show you just how seriously he took how you have been hurt. And we can forgive knowing we have been forgiven much and that we have a Father who deeply cares about our pain. You hear this morning and you think yourself good. You plan to get into heaven on your own good works or because you think God accepts everyone because he is a nice guy. Friends, that is a lie. I don't know any other way to say it. Maybe you disagree with me this morning. Maybe you take my logic and you throw it entirely out of the window or you say, oh, there are other smarter people than you who say other things. That's very true. But the Bible is desperately clear. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. So if you think God will let good people into heaven because he's a nice guy, you are making a God of your own. Good luck. Good luck. Because you don't know this God. You won't get to heaven and prove anything to him. He'll say, those were your words, not mine. God has provided a gracious way out. God is a good guy. That's why he provided a way of escape. That's why he was willing to lay the sins of the world on his own son. But there is one way out. And it's only if we throw ourselves on Christ. You are not good enough. I'm sorry. You are not. None of us are. One final word of application for us. Friends, the world is under judgment. We saw it last week. We've seen it this week. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And if we don't tell them, your coworkers, your friends, the neighbor next door who mows his lawn way too early in the morning, the nurse that works on your floor, the teacher that teaches your kids that you'll see twice a year at PTA meetings. If we don't tell them, they will rightfully be punished under the wrath of God. They're not merely missing out on a wonderful support system in the church. They're not missing out on their best life now or understanding the world the way it is. No, they will rightly suffer an eternity in hell. Half of the world right now will go to hell having never even heard the name of Jesus. And they will suffer in hell for their sins because God is righteous and they must. We must tell them it is not love to keep silent. It is not a polite to allow them to suffer the condemnation of the holy God so we can avoid the condemnation of an angry world. We must tell them. So to conclude this morning, where is the glory in this? What is the glory of the cross? That's my main point. That's my title of this sermon. What is so glorious about this? I started this morning by asking the question, what is God's grace? 
to God's good will towards us? Well, yes, but that is a completely insufficient question, answer. The cross is so much more than simple goodwill. When the redeemed look at the cross, we see every lash, every bruise, every drop of blood, and we say, it was for me. It was for me. It was for me. And you know what that gives us the power to do? Every time we are sinned against, every time life brings pain, every time we have a deep season of dark doubt, the cross cries back to us, God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. Let's pray. Father, we do not deserve your love. We do not deserve to have our sins paid for. We do not deserve this great exchange. And yet, you have given us the righteousness of Christ as a free gift for all who would believe. Father, open our eyes this morning, whether we are tired Christians who have forgotten how beautiful it is, how much you love us, or those people in here who still rail against this and want desperately to have a God who will let them into heaven on their own merit. Father, crush that this morning that they might see the much more beautiful cross. Father, surely we are unworthy. And yet surely you are gracious. And so we worship you. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.